Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. I'm so excited that we're joined today by Nick Arojo, owner of Arojo. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Oh, I'm so happy to be on the phone with you and communicating and connecting. Yeah, this is so cool. So, Nick, I'm so excited about this because our listeners... They're just so curious and hungry for like the real story, right? Like not the kind of shiny PR spin that companies put out there to customers in the press, but, you know, really what happens behind the scenes for people who are running and growing brands. Um, And you have an incredibly interesting story to tell. So we're going to jump into it. Um, You know, you're a very well-established hairstylist. You have several business platforms. Will you walk our audience through um, the company Erosia and what it means? Sure. So I've been hairdressing for 35 years. I came to America 22 years ago as a, as an employer in, in a leading hair brand. And just over 15 years ago, I started Erosia, which is a hair company. And when I say it's a hair company, it's broken up into three different pillars. Pillar number one is the foundation of our brand, which is this hair salon piece. At present, we have three salons in New York, one in Tribeca, uh, what we call our mothership here in Soho, and our location out in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We employ over 75 full-time employee stylists, and we have about 30 people in training to be the future of the hairdressing brand. And we service over 1,500 clients a week and the clients come from all over the country. So that's pillar number one and that was the foundation of the brand. The second pillar is our education platform. Our education platform is the key that keeps us relevant and real and it keeps us well grounded because we are having what we call an education culture company. And to flesh that out, we have two cosmetology schools. So if anyone's interested in embarking on a career in hairdressing, you have to get licensed by the state so that you can actually start to become a hairdresser. We have two cosmetology schools, one in our Tribeca location and one in our Soho location. So that's really exciting. And we also offer uh, advanced ongoing education for hairdressers from all over the country, if not from all over the world, So literally every weekend, we are teaching, training um, existing hairdressers from all over the place, as well as through every week, Monday through Friday, we're training the future of the hairdressing business in our cosmetology schools. And then the third pillar is our hair products. We launched our hair products about 10 years ago, and we really believe that, uh, you know, the goal is always to make people look great and feel fabulous. Without hair products, you cannot do that. So we have our hair products, and the way in which we do that is we have our products to sell in our own locations. It's called Erosio product, and we also sell that product through to salons across the country who also believe in our synergistic vision of education and uh, making people look great and feel fab. So three pillars, salon business, the education platform, and of course, our product business too. It's incredible what you've built here. Um, And obviously, clearly super ambitious, which makes me curious to know, um, why did you come to the US? What prompted that? 
you know, I started hairdressing when I was 16 years of age. And by the time I was six, by the time I was 17, I kind of had this dream that I would move to New York. I'd never been to New York. I came to America for the very first time when I was 21 years of age, and I worked in Chicago. I used to work for one of the most leading um, hair brands in the UK, Vidal Sassoon, and they had locations here in America. So I had Mm -hmm. this like dream that one day I would move to New York, and I had a vision of what it would be. The first time I came to New York was on a one-way ticket, and that was when I came to work here. (laughs) So uh, I was 28 years of age and my dream kind of came true. And when I started working here, it was kind of, you know, the beginning of the eye opener for me, having more than 10 years experience in the hair business, but coming to this super, super fast paced city and, uh, you know, this, this great country, which kind of really helps you to, I suppose, believe in yourself and, and can help you kind of fulfill that thing that we call the American dream. So that's why, what, what, made, what got me here, and I'm still dreaming. Was it hard to get your first job in the U.S.? Like, did you have to you know work really hard to get it, or was it easy to, to just weave yourself into it? I don't think a lot of people understand how difficult it is to legally come into America. Um, and I came here legally. I was very fortunate that I had two job offers. One was to work for a leading manufacturer and one was to work for a leading hair salon. Um, I did that based on my reputation that I'd created in the UK. Um, The world was getting smaller then. It's much smaller now. But uh, thankfully, through what I did and what I achieved in England, people stateside got to hear about me. And I managed to have enough uh, reputation and accolade that made it that I could actually get a true sponsorship to come and work here in America. So it's not easy to do, but I was very fortunate that I got the opportunity to fulfill my dream because I don't believe, you know, I always believe that, you know, one day I will get to New York and I always want to do everything correctly. I think it's a very important principle to do everything correctly. So I did not come to New York until I had that firm commitment of a job. I had my working papers. I arrived here on a one-way ticket with $1,500, and, uh, and my dream continued. That's so cool. So um, before I got to meet you through the podcast, um, I knew you, and I'm dating myself now, um, from What Not to Wear, which was like, you know, the coolest TV show ever uh, way back when. Um, and you had many, many years on this show, and this show really was like, you know, the beginning of everything that we know from TV now. Um, Tell us a little bit about what it was like to be part of that, you know, kind of, um, I guess, reality TV experience back then. It was pretty amazing, you know. It was like very kind of um, matter of fact when it happened. I didn't know what was happening, you know. I'd left my company, my partnership business. I'd been in America for seven, eight years. I found myself uh, downtown trying to create a rojo. I had very little money. I was renting a couple of chairs inside a school, and one of my clients said to me, oh, there's a TV show that they're casting for hairdressers, and are you interested in trying out? And, you know, one of the keys to success is always saying yes. I said, yeah, no problem. They came down to meet me. They filmed me for a short period of time. I was so tired and exhausted when they came to film me. It was like probably one of the worst experiences for me personally, thinking that someone's going to film me and um, and watch me, 
literally a week later, they said, Nick, you're kind of in the top, you know, two or three hairdressers that could get this role for this 10 season, this, this 10 episode season. And I was very nonchalant and said, well, if it works great and if it doesn't work great, just let me know because I'm working on trying to build my dream. Um, shortly thereafter, they came back and said, well, congratulations, you're the guy. This is based off a successful show in England. So, of course, being from England, I called my mom and I said, Mom, I'm going to be on this TV show called What Not to Wear. She said, I've never heard about it. So I was confused as whether it was going to be a, a big thing or not. Um, and I rolled into the show and it was kind of pretty low brow and, and it, we filmed it inside an apartment. We did the 10 episodes. There was no change in my business personally, but it was fun to do. I really enjoyed it. There were some light bulb moments when I got to experience the change that people have when they get their mm -hmm. hair done and when they've never had great hair. So it was personally very rewarding. But I think the real reward came when I eventually opened up and got my first lease for a Rojo. And the producers of the show came down and they said, guess what, Nick? We just signed season two, 50 episodes. And literally six months after that, I started to see a major impact in my business from, um, from being on television. So it was really an amazing experience. It's so cool. So for the people who are listening who are younger than me, um, we're talking mm -hmm. about what, like 2003, right? 2003, 2004 we started, in the we beginning. We started filming, two, yeah, 2003 we started filming, and I stopped filming in 2010, and it's the gift that keeps on giving because they keep playing those reruns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was such a great show, and, you know, back then there, there weren't as many great things to watch from that kind of um, makeover reality because it didn't feel like fake reality. It felt really real, right? Um, it, it felt, felt very real, and that, was, and that was the buzz, and we had a couple of other hairdressers that worked for me that also got success. Um, there was Style Court. There was one of my hairdressers who worked with me that was on TV because I think the makeover shows became very popular. And at the same time that I started doing What Not to Wear, my apprentice, Kyan Douglas, became the hair guru for Queer Eye for a Straight Guy. Remember that, Joe? Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> so it was, awesome. a, it was a TV explosion of reality in our lives, and uh, we tried to you know, kind of ride the journey as much as we could. You know, it makes me um, think about this idea of being really open. You mentioned that you, you know, you were very open to this idea of trying new things. Um, and it's hard to be open, right? Because it means you're being vulnerable. Um, do you remember what it felt like to just say okay to things, you know, without overthinking it? Well, my attorney said, don't sign this contract because with television comes contracts. And I said, you know what? If it works, it's going to be great. And if it doesn't work, it'll be over. I think you have to have optimism, and I think if you're overly guarded, um, you know, I think maybe you might lose some opportunities. I, I suppose I'll give you a, a better example. When you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. When you have a lot, maybe you have something to lose. At that stage in my life, I had nothing to lose. I had nothing. Somebody came to me and said, you're going to do hair on TV. They're going to film me doing hair. Regardless of what the contract said, I said, this is a great opportunity. Jump with it and let's take it from there. So I disagreed with, you know, um, 
what my attorney advised on this one, and I think I made the right choice. <laughs> That's awesome. So let's um, let's go back to running a business, right? Because this is how you spend most of your uh-huh. time. Um, so you have three pillars, um, multiple locations, multiple partners. Um, what role do you take in all this? It's a guiding role, you know. I've, I've always tried to guide, train, and I've always tried to replace myself. And as I've grown my business and seen my vision kind of come to life, you know, I used to have a shoebox, and on my little shoebox was like these little things that I'd keep up. And on the inside of the shoebox, I suppose people would put things on their fridge to remind them. And inside my shoebox, there was a quote that said, you know, try and do something bigger than you can ever imagine. And, uh, and I'm doing something bigger than I can ever imagine. So, but I, it's, it's like step by step. Yeah, it's not to be overwhelmed. Um, so I take a guiding role in all of my business. I started off being the hairdresser behind the chair, and I'm the educator. But now I have 75 hairdressers that work alongside me, and they're all educators that work alongside me. And uh, then I have, you know, kind of key employees that oversee each of the pillars and that helps, I help to guide them and they feed information through me. So it's very multifaceted. Um, I think even today, and it's barely 11 o'clock, just past in the morning. And, um, you know, I've been involved in each facet and many different things. So there's never a dull moment. And I just try to do my best to uh, establish the, the right things for, for what my experience has given me. So as someone who's running and guiding basically multiple businesses under an umbrella, um, what's the biggest pain point for you in all this? What's the biggest challenge? uh, There's not enough hours in the day. I need a (laughs) 34-hour day. That's what I need to get through. I've learned a long time ago that by the time the day comes to an end, the stuff that you did, there's always stuff that you didn't get to address. So, and you have to be somewhat okay with that because it's not like there's an end game. It's a journey and I enjoy the journey and we prioritize what's the most important thing to deal with today, right now. It keeps it exciting. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I think having a, I don't look at my, um, I don't look at what I do as a job. I never have. And I teach that this is not a job. Hairdressing is a career. And I try to explain to people what that means. A career is something that changes. So you have a a guided destination. And my my career's evolved and changed. I'm fortunate that I have a career. And I'm fortunate that it's multifaceted. And it enables me to um, constantly keep learning and, 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 I suppose, enjoying the fact that there is a sense of purpose and the purpose is in education and that's a great purpose and the purpose is in making people look good and feel good and that's a great thing too and the purpose is watching a baby like a brand or like a new product be developed and evolved and seeing that you have kind of not only maybe innovated it but you've actually created it with your team of people so collectively there's a real personal satisfaction it is a lot of work. You re- I realized a long time ago that, hey, this is not going to, it can't be this much hard work forever. But I think that at a certain point in life, 
you say to yourself, hey, you work hard for success. Now you have to work even harder to nurture the success. And I see that my, uh, my journey in my career is, uh, is to evolve it so that maybe um, it'll be a little bit less physical work and more controlled uh, work in the future. But it's an ongoing yeah. journey and it's multifaceted. Um, you know, you mentioned like, you know, kind of finding a, a path eventually where you're not, I guess, as physically required, you know, as physically present as many hours a day. And I think about that a lot because when I started my business 10 years ago, um, I had a personal goal, which maybe sounds silly, but um, it stayed the same the whole 10 years, which is I want to work as little as possible and make as much money as possible, right? And I'm simplifying it, right? Because there's like a lot of joy and creativity in there. But like, how do I do that, right? I'm not going to be a billionaire because of this strategy, right? That's fine. I don't need to be a billionaire. Um, but how do I basically pack in the fun, the joy, the creativity, the pleasure, the collaboration into fewer hours, knowing that, you know, the zillions of dollars aren't coming, but, you know, can I be comfortable? Can my team be comfortable? Can we, you know, get to the point where we have, you know, money in our pockets so we, that feels comfortable? So that's sort of been like a, a, a goal of mine and it shifts, right? Like the bars, mm-hmm. some of them, the, the work, maybe I work more now than I'd like to, but I don't see myself working but, this long forever, right? Um, it's mm-hmm. like a give and take, I guess. Almost well, like for, me, I, on it, for me, honestly, you know, I never focused on the money. I just focused on the process and I focused mm-hmm. on the dream of what made me feel good. And then what happened was I never had any money and there was no profit because the number one motivator for me was always, well, as long as we can pay the bills, we're still in business. And the first person to get to, to, to the last person to take anything was always going to be me. And then what happened was after year three, the success of the business started to drive a profit to the bottom line. And I was like, oh my God, we're actually starting to make money. And I've managed to, and this has kind of been part of how I've look, looked at my business. So I'm like, I'm prepared to work really hard. And as I've been working really hard, there's been times when I've said to myself, okay, I need to reward myself for all my hard work. So I've been very fortunate that I've managed to um, superly exceed my expectation of my own personal uh, goal satisfaction, and then I realized that the thing that gives me life is my business. So this is where I, this is where I love to be. But you know, I'm very fortunate. If it was all to stop today, I would say, "Wow, Nick, you exceeded your expectations beyond your personal desire for comfort." And I mean, I think we're looking for what you're saying is we're looking for personal um, security. Uh, I still because I have such high expectations of my business and myself, I don't know that I have um, that complete security for my business uh, for the future, but uh, I know that I have a really good cushion to, uh, to, to help guide me through any kind of headwind or change or difficulty. So I do, you know, have kind of run my business fiscally responsible while still being able to reward myself for all of the hard work. And in those moments when I step back, I can say, wow, look at this apartment, Nick, that you got in New York City that you own. Or look Mm -hmm. at the place that you have and look at where you live and how you live and how you travel. 
So I live through my business and it helps to give me some comfort in my life. And I have two great little boys and a beautiful wife. So we're, um, we're doing pretty good, which is a blessing. Uh, you know, you, when we first talked together, you described running the business as um, being like a boxer. Um, yes. Can you talk to us a bit about what that means? Well, think about a year and you've got 12 months in a year, so you've got 12 rounds in the boxing match, yeah? And throughout mm-hmm. the year, you are going to take one or two punches. Throughout a boxing match, you're going to take one through punches that if, if, if <laughs> as long as you're still standing at the end of the round, at the end of the match, you're still in business, you're still winning. Uh, certain issues happen, uh, hidden surprises that are not planned for, new regulations that get passed down because of employees if you have a, you know, legislation, surprise expenditures, or real miscalculations. There are always surprises, and the surprises could be you know, if a key team member leaves your business, you have to be able to make your business streamline its operation and cope with the loss of somebody that was managing a major asset. If you have an unexpected bill, which could be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and those things do happen, or if costs change. I recently got to the end of my lease here in Soho, and we're talking about the landlord wanting to triple the rent. So being able to manage the process, because when we are making money today, it doesn't mean we're going to have the same rules and regulations and the same employees on staff today. And another thing that I've noticed, having been in business for a long period of time, is when your former employees leave, they actually become competition in your space. And that's part of understanding how to stay in business. And I think that for me, when I had my very first business, which was a partnership business, we had a plan to getting business. We never had a plan after that. Mm-hmm. What I've done with this business is I've always got a working, changing, evolving business plan. And I pretty much do that year to year. And I keep a notebook that keeps me on a thread because my intention of what I want to achieve in a 12-month period, um, it may end up not going in the same direction, but by keeping just a notebook on hand, it helps me to remember, A, what, what I thought we should do, and then B, where we end up, and I can kind of work out maybe what I need to do next year to take my business to the next step. So there's constant discovery, and there are constant um, surprises that you have to deal with. Um, you know, you described 12 boxing matches. I think sometimes I have 365, you know, boxing <laughs> matches. But I think I'm more of a one day at a time than a one month at a time entrepreneur. And it's, you know, yeah. every day is so different. Um, mm-hmm. This has been really insightful, Nick. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. This is incredible. My pleasure. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I think it's been just a, such a great journey for me. And I'm, it's the middle of the middle of the year and I'm in round seven <laughs> and I've got some boxing I've got some I've got some stuff to deal with right now and uh, you know I'm looking at so much work ahead of me but I'm also looking at so much reward at the same time because we are moving and we are changing and constantly trying to um, you know push my business forward and I'll leave you with this 
I teach a lot. I teach hairdressers all over the country and I teach, you know, I talk to my clients. I have a great network of clients that help. They're good, intelligent people that we can share ideas with and thoughts with. And I always say, it's really hard to get into business for yourself. But when you get into business for yourself, you have so much motivation and desire that it helps to get you into business. Staying in business is really difficult. It's harder than getting into business because you have to have that, you know, depth of, uh, uh, of you've got to be able to manage the time, stay focused on the role. And you've also got to, you know, be able to just stay with the pace. And then finally, I'm doing business in New York, just like you, to stay at the top in the most, one of the most competitive places in the world is the hardest. So I recognize what my role is. I recognize my responsibility. And I always try to remember that um, I'm fulfilling the dream that I dreamt about. And even though it may be hard at times, there is so much reward being able to at least have a career and have a dream that you can continue to fulfill. So I do hope that it really, you know, being able to share this story, um, it helps me as an individual because it's a constant reminder that when you actually speak it, it actually reminds you of, of, of the excitement of why you're doing what you're doing in the first place. That's great, Nick. Well, you have to keep those gloves up. I'll keep my gloves up. Um, <laughs> you got it. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.